Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. All right, so on my notes, yeah, I didn't have enough time to do a fill in the blank. I do apologize for those that uh, appreciate that style. Um, I've really just kind of boiled it down to there are some main subject headings I'm going to be going over. So this topic this week is irresistible grace. I'm going to talk about the historical setting. I'm going to try to define it for you guys very well. Um, and what's the other one? Oh, I'm going to give a defense for it, which is where, not after defining it, I want to show through Scripture why this is a biblical concept. And finally, I want to show its practicality, why this doctrine is so practical in the life of a believer. So we're going to start with the historical setting. Feel free to take any notes, but... I know Kyle had talked about um, the Canons of Dort, the Synod of Dort. I want to revisit that briefly so you kind of get an idea of what is this whole topic of tulip, uh, Arminianism versus Calvinism? What is this, where did this come from? So as uh, our brother Mike Schaus pointed out last week, uh, this week America celebrated the great Reformation holiday where kids were reenacting the knocking of the 95 Thesis by banging on my door. Um, <laughs> But really, that, all those events, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, uh, these reformers, they were, would have been 16th century, so that's the 1500s, late 1400s, early 1500s. They were starting to break away from the Roman Catholic Church, whether it's Geneva, Switzerland with Luther, or Germany and... Uh, sorry, I had that backwards, dyslexia. Luther was in Germany. Uh, Calvin was in Geneva. So different parts of Europe breaking away from the Roman Catholic Church, rediscovering the gospel and the word of God, the authority of God. And so after them, shortly after, in 1559, a guy by the name of Jacob Arminius is born. He lives until 1609, but he begins to study at Geneva Academy. Uh, he's around 20 years old, goes to Geneva Academy. That's John Calvin's seminary. Now, it was after he was passed away. Um, so he studies there, and then in 1587, he begins his pastoral ministry in Amsterdam. So this guy was trained in Geneva Academy, begins pastoring in 1587. And then during 1591 to 1596, this guy is writing down and more developing and teaching his theological convictions. And so after 1596, actually in 1602, there was a plague that swept through a city called Leiden. And in the city, uh, lots of people died, but there was a university called the University of Leiden, and two professors died in this plague. And so when they were looking for someone to fill the role, they gave one position to another person and another position they gave to Jacob Arminius. So he became uh, yeah, one of the professors there. This was a reform seminary. And the head dean, the head teaching officer there began to notice that what Jacob Arminius was teaching was a lot different from the reform tradition. And so he became, became aware and just a little disturbed about what he was teaching I uh, didn't really try to brand him as a heretic, was just wrestling with it. But more and more, up until his death in 1609, they were very concerned about what this man was teaching. And so upon his death and after his death, he had a lot of followers uh, from his teaching his students in Leiden to people who have read his notes. And the Reformed Church, back in this time, there wasn't much of a separation from church and state. They kind of controlled the government as well. And his followers, after his death in 1609, were very concerned about being excommunicated from the city, uh, being, being branded as heretics. So what they did in 1610 is they filed what's called a remonstrance. A remonstrance is simply just a complaint or a protest to their government. And what they're seeking to do with this remonstrance is they wanted an opportunity to answer the charges of heresy. So since his death, 1609, up till 1610, this is when they filed this. They've just been getting branded heretics. They were, so they're trying to defend themselves. And in 1610, they laid out five major heads of doctrine. And so their five major heads were conditional election, universal atonement, a total depravity with provenient grace. I'll explain that in a second. Resistible grace and conditional perseverance. And so if you kind of start with total depravity and provenient grace, what they taught was that though every man had fallen in Adam, every man was born a sinner, 
that God through Christ and the gospel come to the earth had given enough provenient grace for any man to freely come back to God. That it was still God's grace enabling them, but man was able. I know when uh, Kyle talked on total depravity, he explained how in our view of it, man's ability has been lost. Well, they view that because of prevenient grace, he has that ability now to come to God. And that election, it's not unconditional, but it's conditional if you would choose God. That the atonement was for everyone. So Christ has covered your sin if you accept it. That the grace of God comes to every man, this prevenient grace, but it can be resisted. And that perseverance, final perseverance to heaven, is conditioned upon your obedience. If you really kind of notice a lot about all that, it's very man... <clears throat> very centered upon the decision and the will of man. And so what happened after that is what we're teaching on now, TULIP, is that from that presentation, nothing really helped. There was more division, more controversy, and it really didn't mend any kind of wounds. And so they presented that in 1610. Eight years later, the Reformed churches gathered what's been called the Synod of Dort. Synod is just a meeting. Dort is a location. It's the meeting at Dort, the Synod of Dort. And there, the Reformed churches from multiple parts across Europe gathered, and they deliberated from 1618 for four months until 1619. And they came up with what's been called, infamously now, the five points of Calvinism. These five points, again, these are really just, they're called tulip as well, but really it's just the canons of Dort. These are the doctrines that were discussed and brought forth at Dort, at this synod. And so there the Reformed Church condemned these men as heretics. They said, your, your views are all from Scripture, and they presented five counterviews. And that's what we've been going through in the Sunday school class. First is unconditional election. That's not dependent upon your decision. It's not God look forward in time to see if you choose him. It's that he determined to choose his people. He elected them. And then we talked about total depravity, that apart from their view with prevenient grace, that we do believe in a sense of common grace, is that man's ability has been lost because of his sin. Because of his fallen Adam, his nature is held captive to the bondage of his will, and he will not come to God, because he, and he can't. And so we talked about, I think last week was it the atonement that we believe in what's in TULIP, it's called limited atonement. I prefer the term definite atonement, that there was a defined atonement. It wasn't for whoever may believe, but it was for specifically the redeemed of God. And so this week, now we are on to irresistible grace. There's perseverance of the saints we'll get on next week. I believe Kyle will pick up. And so now let's move to its definition. So again, it's called irresistible grace, though there may be little nuances. This doctrine has also been called the doctrine of effectual calling. It has also been called the doctrine of regeneration, to be born again. Um, it could be called the doctrine of monergistic regeneration, speaking of God's soul act. And I thought, well, it'd probably be good if I gave you a, a good definition I could come up with. I was like, why would I come up with when, uh, shout out to R.C. Sproul's Bible, he's got the canons of Dort in the very back of it. I could just read what they wrote down. So I thought that'd probably be a lot better than anything I'm going to present. So uh, in this, really, they just, they have the five heads that I've presented, and they have articles that affirm, like little paragraphs that affirm what they believe, and then they have, uh, at the very end of it, it'd be rejections, things that they reject that were specifically part of these followers. So I want to read... Um, two paragraphs. It's, on, it's Article 11 and 12, and uh, under the third and fourth heads of doctrine, this deals with effectual calling. So when the church gathered at the Synod of Dort, this is what they expressed was God's word revealed, summarized. So I want to read, starting in Article 11. I wish, I really wish I would have prepared and got this for you. Uh, I'll try to read slowly. It says, but when God accomplishes his good pleasure in the elect, or works in them true conversion, he not only causes the gospel to be externally preached to them and powerfully illuminates their mind by his Holy Spirit, that they might rightly understand and discern the things of the Spirit of God, but by the efficacy, the effect of the same regenerating spirit pervades the inmost recesses of the man. He opens the clothes 
softens the hardened heart and circumcises that which was uncircumcised. He infuses new qualities into the will, which though heretofore was dead, he quickens or makes alive from being evil, disobedient, and refractory. I think, I believe that means hard. He renders it good, obedient, and pliable, actuates and strengthens it, that like a good tree, it may bring forth the fruits of good action. Continuing in Article 12, and this is the regeneration so highly celebrated in the scripture and denominated a new creation, a resurrection from the dead, a making alive, which God works in us without our aid. But this is in no wise affected merely by the external preaching of the gospel, by moral persuasion, or such a mode of operation, that after God has performed his part, it is still remains in the power of man to be regenerated or not, to be converted or to continue unconverted. But it is evidently a supernatural work, a most powerful, at the same time most delightful, astonishing, mysterious, and ineffable. Not in fear and efficacy to creation, the resurrection from the dead, as the scripture inspired by the author of this work declares, so that all in whose heart God works in his marvelous manner are certainly, infallibly, and effectually regenerated and do actually believe. Whereupon the will thus renewed is not only actuated and influenced by God, but in consequence of his influence becomes itself active. Wherefore also man is himself rightly said to believe and repent by virtue of that grace received. So I'm going to stop there. They had a lot more, but I really, I think, I, I want to read a little bit of R.C. Sproul too, because he has a good little point, I think, that helps boil down what, what all was that teaching, per se. His book, What, what is Reformed Theology? Reformed Theology. These are some nice clarifying remarks. Says, In the Reformation view, the work of regeneration is performed by God and by him alone. The sinner is completely passive in receiving this grace. Any cooperation we display towards God occurs only after the work of regeneration has been completed. The point is, however, that unless we first receive the grace of regeneration, we will not and cannot respond to the gospel in a positive way. Regeneration must occur before there can be any positive response of faith. So, to boil all that down, is that what this effectual calling is, is kind of getting at is that God must do a mighty and supernatural work in the heart of an unbeliever before they can come to faith. He irresistibly sends his grace to change them from the inside out. He renews their will to receive the message. And I think a very interesting, Jesus used parables. And I think a very interesting parable that covers this, sorry, I'm being OCD with these papers, is if I tell you a story that will help display this. There's a particular story in John chapter 11 that, if you already know where I'm going with this, this, this really brings this to life. So in John 11, you don't have to turn there. I'm not going to read it verse by verse. But there's the story of Lazarus. Jesus loved Lazarus. He loved Martha and Mary, his sisters, and Lazarus dies. Jesus waits until after he dies, which is interesting. But then he finally goes to him. He's there. People are mourning. He talks to Martha and Mary, goes to the tomb. So Jesus, picture Jesus, he's at the tomb. He says, roll away the stone. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. Anyone want to point out what's kind of difficult about Lazarus coming forth? He's dead. All right, Jesus, like this is something I kind of got from Paul Washer. It was, I mean, that's my first eyes. First time learning re about regeneration, about this, is that, you know, that is kind of interesting to think about is he can tell Lazarus to come forth all he wants, but Lazarus is dead. He can't hear the command. Something has to happen for Lazarus to hear that command, then he can come forth. And why do I bring up this story of Lazarus? Is because this story is a parallel in the physical reality of what happens spiritually in effectual calling, an irresistible grace. That before someone can heed and obey the gospel, believe it, repent of their sins, something has to happen to change their nature that they will respond. Otherwise, they are still dead. And so with that, I, I need to start defending this. Because really, the, the, to boil it down to a simple thing is, Reformed thought, and we will hold to, that regeneration, being born again, precedes or comes before faith. 
Arminius and his followers had it backwards. They said, you have to have faith in order to be born again. We say, no, to, be, to have faith, you must be born again first. And so that's a bold declaration. That's a bold assertion that this church stands on, that we as Reformed believers stand on, and I need to defend it. I can just say that all day, but if I do not back it up by Scripture, and it does me no good. So with that, we're going to go to its defense. And so I'm going to start laying out, um, and I hope your fingers are popped and ready to roll. We're going to be hopping through some passages. Um, but I think to begin defending this, it's defense, the defense of irresistible grace. I need to start with its presupposition. And all I mean by that is, if I'm going to argue for irresistible grace, there's something underlying that argument. And that's that I believe men are really dead in their sins. You see, this is kind of where the first objection began with Pelagius, uh, back with him and Augustine, and then also Arminius, his followers, is that they had a different view about the effect of sin on man. The reformers' starting thought is that man is so depraved, so in bondage to his nature that is fallen in Adam, and so under the power of sin that it has affected how he can come to God, that he can't on his own. He needs God's grace to change him. And so I must first show how total depravity is true biblically. And from that, we're going to move to here. So I'm just going to briefly try to defend total depravity. Um, we're going to start at the beginning in Genesis 6-5, if you want to turn there. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Actually, real quick, I'll return there. Does anyone have a question or any kind of thoughts or anything? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Confused. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is, is that regeneration, you're calling it being born again, is that going to occur immediately before you believe? Or, I mean, I can recall a time in like seventh grade mm-hmm. where I was at, at a uh, meeting and resisted. I had this strong urge, like I had to run down to the altar call. Mm-hmm. And I resisted that um, and then was saved four years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, so she's asking, when is the time of regeneration? She has a conviction of her heart of a time where she was explicitly running from when she felt convicted to repent and believe in Christ, and later she came to Christ. And so in, I would kind of go with what was read in there, is that I, I can't, I don't believe any of us could ever point out when specifically maybe, you know, the exact moment when God changed our heart to where we came to him. At the end of the day, it's all within God's plan. When God sovereignly chooses to intervene in the life of those that he beforehand, unconditional election, chose that I'm going to come and rescue them from their sinfulness. God, in some decisions, some people, I know Dan Gilak has expressed this, he's not exactly for sure when it began, but God, when he chooses, he will. And so I can't define that for you. I'm not for sure. And I, um, I think the best thing that we, we should be doing, I guess, is looking for the fruits and the evidence that we have been changed so we can say, you know, I may not know the exact time, but I can see that God has done something radically to me that I went from hating Christ, rejecting the things of God, to loving Christ. So I hope that answers in some fashion. Because, <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, I know when... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there was a long period of time where I was definitely being, it's like I was being, being convicted. Drawn, being drawn. I'm going to get to that in a little bit. I'm going to get to that in a little bit. So maybe that'll help help okay. something. Do you have some, Darren? Well, I know there are those, I think even in the Reformed tradition, mm-hmm. that believe there can possibly be a time lapse between regeneration and faith. Hmm. I'm not going to argue for or against that. <laughs> I'm fairly certain that's not mm-hmm. what this church teaches, and mm-hmm. I don't believe that. Mm-hmm. Okay. There are theologians that talk about there are no less than 36 different things going on in this salvation package, mm-hmm. and it is all, for lack of a better term, instantaneous. Yeah. Even though this is going to sound like an oxymoron, there is a chronological order to these things mm-hmm. that happen. Logically, logically, yeah. 
Yeah, okay. So Darren was just talking about how in the salvation, there's a package, you know, you're justified, you're redeemed, you're sanctified, you're born again, regenerated, and that there is a kind of a logical order that, again, that we've presented, you have to be born again before you can be justified, have faith, so something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, um, sorry, before I get off topic, yeah, I'm trying to, oh yeah, so, sorry. <laughs> Any other questions? I was trying to remember where I was at. <laughs> Rick, yeah. Uh, you're already moving ahead. Of, you read my notes, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, Ricky, we're going to get there, Rick. All right. So first, yeah, defending the, because the, I need to show first that man, if I'm going to, proclaim, if the reformers were going to proclaim that regeneration has to precede faith, that you must be born again to receive Christ, to have faith, I need to show that you were dead before you had Christ. I need to show that you were unable to come to Christ. So yeah, Genesis 6-5. And for me, I, usually you say the best for last. I honestly think this is the most just crushing verse in all of Scripture, if you ask me. So the setting is, this is right before God's going to judge the world with the flood. Worldwide flood, he's going to destroy everyone. He's looking at the human race, looking at everything going on. This is God's view of mankind in Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I could probably just drop the mic and walk off, and we'd be like, all right, yeah, told the proud is real. The Lord is looking at all of mankind. This is not a small group. This isn't a group of people. This isn't Las Vegas or something. It's all the earth. And he sees that all their hearts, and for the Jew, that's their center of their will, their desires. We don't, we separate my heart and my mind, my body is all telling me the different things. The Jew, it's just the heart. That's the center of your passions, your thoughts, your emotions, your will. Lord sees that and says, all your intentions and your thoughts, everything you do, everything you're wrapped up in your mind, it's only evil. Now, if it said only evil some of the time, then there'd be a good argument that we're not probably totally brave, but it says continually. And so it's like people are like, get offended, probably like, I don't feel that bad. Well, if you really were to judge the content, the, the decisions of your heart, the, the motives, You'd see you do not love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You don't love your neighbor as yourself. That's the purpose of the Good Samaritan parable was to show people, to show that scribe he doesn't even love his neighbor close to what he should be loving. If he doesn't love his neighbor that well, he let alone doesn't love God that well. And so God gives us condemning statements. Some people are like, well, maybe that's when, that was just before the flood. So if you turn on over to Genesis 8, 21, a couple of pages over, you know, God wiped all them people out. They're all gone now. Well, not according to God's word. Genesis 8, 21. After the flood. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So God is declaring that even after the flood, I'm not going to just drown the world again because man's evil from his youth, from a young age. His heart, heart, the thoughts and intentions of his heart are only evil continually, and it's from when they're young. People are like, wow, well, you know, what if we train our kids better? Well, that's why you turn to Psalm 51.5. David in repentance is saying, the issue, the problem is not because I was just young, I started being bad, but I was born in iniquity. I was conceived in sin. That this is every man and woman. That since our forefather Adam fell, we being born with the fallen nature I am, have fallen too. That we don't, we're not born, we're good, then we sin and become sinners. No, no. We are born sinners. That's why we come forth sinning. That's why our thoughts and our intentions of our heart are only evil continually. From our youth, from birth, we are born to pray. We are born sinners. And so, turning to Jeremiah 13, 23, if you want to flip forward in there, I guess a question could be asked, well, can't we just, you know, self-reform ourselves? Can we just change ourselves, tweak our behavior? Uh, can we try working on ourselves, you know? 
Yeah, I think that's a big motto with the young people like myself nowadays, you know, work on you, boo-boo, or something like that. It's like, well, let's let the Word of God examine this. Jeremiah 13, 23, Jeremiah is speaking judgment against Israel and their, their actions, and God gives this rhetorical question, can an Ethiopian change his skin color? I mean, can anyone change their skin? I know nowadays with our advancements, we had not that, but in this time frame, just, or the leopard, can it change its spots? So he goes on to say, there's, there's an obvious answer, no. Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. In the same way that an animal can't change its coat, in the same way a human cannot change their skin color, so also it cannot reform his evil behavior. So we're born in sin from the youth up we're sinning, thoughts and intentions are hard, only evil, and we can't change it according to Jeremiah. So this is why we get to Paul's condemnation, Romans chapter 3, we're going to turn there. Paul just grabs all these verses from the Old Testament and wipes out a sweeping summary of how sinful man is. Romans chapter 3, you know, he says, starting at verse 9, you know, what then are we Jews any better off than Gentiles? Not at all, for we've already charged that all are, and this is really the to start all this off, this is the underlying phrase, the foundational phrase, all are under sin. That sin is viewed here as a taskmaster. That we are underneath its power, underneath its presence, and it has control over us. And that's why he can go on to quote all these verses. There's none righteous. No, not even a single one. No one seeks after God. All of us have turned aside. We've become worthless. I love the translation that puts unprofitable. We are made to glorify God, but because of being under sin, we can't even be profitable for the reason God made us. It goes to our, you know, our throats, our tongues, our mouth, our feet. That it's an open grave, deceit. We're quick to run to evil. And at the very end, condemns us with this. There's no fear of God before our eyes. This is mankind. We don't fear God. And so this is why you can get to our last press. We're going to turn, well, sorry, not really. Uh, Ephesians 2. We get to this condemning three verses that Paul presents in Ephesians. And I'm going to read these in. He's reading these in the past tense for believers. I'm going to read these changing the verbs to present tense. So you can see what mankind is before Christ in the present state. And you are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you are now walking, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom... We all are living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body, the mind, and are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I could, I could turn you to a host of other texts too. I just really just picked this little flow. But you see the, the picture being presented from all these verses? This is what we do in systematic theology. We take all these texts that speak on this issue, gather them up. And you see, this is why when you turn, and you can turn out of this, we'll sit here for a moment, John 6, 44. When you take all these verses, you see how Scripture presents man before God without his grace coming to him. This is the picture the Scripture presents. And this helps us, when we know all these verses, when we get, get to John 6, 44, it helps us understand what Jesus means when he says this. John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on that last day. I'm going to focus on the first six verses, though. No one can come to me. What's the difference between if he would have said, no one may come to me, or no one can? What's the difference between that? Anyone want to take a guess? Permission. Permission. As opposed to what? Ability. There you go. Notice you didn't say no one may come to me. No, the, the opportunity is there. It's the ability has been lost. We see, we see all these verses about sin. This is why Jesus tells the Jews in this passage, no one can come to me. Why can't they come to you? My beloved Paul Washer explains this rightly, because they will not come to him. Because they are dead in their sins. And you see, Paul even, we're not going to turn there in Romans 8, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. 
It does not submit to God's law. Here's, here's the kicker. Indeed, it cannot. Therefore, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So seeing all those verses, those aren't my opinions. That's the revealed word of God. I can now say that this is why the reformers disagreed on total depravity with these men. That man on his own natural ability has so suppressed the truth of God, is so corrupt that God must intervene. And so, praise be God, this is what got me excited is from here on out, is that it's in the light of this very dark picture that the glory of irresistible grace shines through. That whole, all those passages, those are very dark. Those are very convicting to see how sinful we are as people, what the Word of God really says about us. But then that's what magnifies God's love and his grace towards sinners, is seeing just how vile we are. And so, starting in John 6, yeah, no one can come to God unless the Father draws him. And those that he draws, let me finish that verse real quick, and I will raise him up on that last day. Next week, God will bless you with that part, the perseverance of the saints, that he will raise those who have been drawn. But today we're going to focus on the drawing. What does Jesus mean that they have been drawn? Well, he goes on in the next verse if you're there. It is written in the prophets that, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. What is this hearing and this learning from the Father that draws men to Christ? Well, my man Ricky was trying to spoil me earlier. Um, we're going to go through just a few more verses. Ezekiel 36, if you want to turn there. Ezekiel chapter 36, we're going to start in verse 22. You see, God in this chapter, coming up to verse 22, he has been making it known to Israel that he has been very displeased by the fact that everywhere Israel has gone, they are the assembly of Yahweh. They are his people. And all they've done is trash his name no matter where they've went. It's because there's something wrong with their hearts. That God gave them the commandments. But with that law, there was no ability to perform it. He told them what to do, but the bondage to sin, the, the sinfulness of them, their hardness of heart, unfortunately, we see all throughout the Old Testament proclaimed, they would not walk in it. And so God, it's amazing, he did that to show what he was going to do in the future. Starting in verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the countries, and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean." From all your uncleanness, from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Notice that God didn't, present to them a provisional promise. If you'll start obeying me now, I'm going to give you a new heart. If you start walking on my ways and quit profaning my name, I'm going to give you my spirit. But he says, I'm going to do a new thing. So I'm going to give you this picture of there's a heart of stone, a heart of flesh. And see, the heart of stone is what I've been trying to show with total depravity is that our heart will not submit to God. It cannot. For that reason, I kind of said it backwards, it cannot because it will not. It is so hardened, so calloused because of sin that it does not respond to God. That's Romans 8. It cannot respond. And so what God promises in this new covenant is that he's going to take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. 
And the idea there is I'm going to remove that heart that won't submit to me. You won't come to me, but I'm going to do something to you so that you will come to me. That's the idea. That's the promise. That your spirit has been so hardened at my word, but I'm going to give you my spirit so you will be willing to come to me. That's why we call it irresistible. I'm going to talk about that more in a little bit. You see, this is also, we don't have to turn there, but Jeremiah 31 talked about this. You, you don't have to turn, but that God, through Jeremiah as well, is promising that he was going to give them a new spirit, change them. And notice the, the promise at the very end of this. Um, you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Again, not you might be my people, and I could be your God if you obey me. God was promising a hardened people that I'm going to do something to where you're actually going to want to obey me. And I'm going to be your God. We are going to have this relationship because I'm going to make it happen. This is why we don't think it's dependent upon man's will, but upon God's sovereign grace intervening to give new life to the man. And so this is what Jesus in John chapter 3, when he's talking to Nicodemus, except a man be born again, born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I believe he's clearly referring back to this passage. It talks about being born of the spirit and of water. He's showing that he's going to bring this heart change that's going to renew people. That It's no longer about trying with a fallen nature, trying to please God by trying your best to just hang on to his rules. Oh, try not to lie today or covet. From the inside out, he's going to change his people so that they groan for that. They reach for God. And so I want to just look at three more verses to defend irresistible grace. And really what I want to do is show that the three main apostles all presented this. Starting in John 1, if you want to turn to John chapter 1. The apostle John presents what he shows his presentation of being born again, of irresistible grace. So John chapter 1, he's giving a prologue to his entire work on Jesus. And he's speaking of Jesus, speaking in verse 11, says, He, Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He came to the Jewish nation. They were his own people. He's of their same blood and lineage. They didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 13, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That John here equates receiving Christ as having faith in him, accepting him. And he shows that this isn't from the will of man, the will of flesh. He tries clarifying that by putting three different terms, not of blood, will of flesh, will of man, but he contrasts those with being born of God. That he views that those that received Christ, that believed in him, had faith in him, was because they were born of God. That's the Apostle John teaching there. Well, what about uh, the Apostle Paul? He wrote most of the New Testament, Ephesians 2, 4. We're going to finish that passage out, that great passage in Ephesians. Ephesians 2, we're going to pick up after that condemnation of man and his sinfulness. That we're all dead, following the course of this world, prince of the power of the air. We're all children of disobedience, like the rest of mankind. The great verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. I don't want for time's sake, I'm going to keep going, but look at what he says. While we were still dead, while we were in that, while we were living underneath the course of this world, while we were dead in our sins, notice it's not that we choose God, he makes us alive. It's God makes us alive out of it so that we come to him, that we're raised up with Christ. That's why he says, by grace, you've been saved. It's not of your works and your doing of coming to Christ. Faith is not a meritorious act. It doesn't earn you the grace of regeneration. God comes to you with regeneration and gives you grace, as a, gives you faith as a gift to save you out of your sinfulness. And that's why we call it irresistible, because it's going to accomplish its purpose. I'm going to quote an R.C. Sproul here in a minute. That's very good on this. Finally, I want to turn to 1 Peter 1. So we have Apostle John, Apostle Paul, and now let's turn to 1 Peter 1. Show how these three pillars of the church were all unified on the idea of regeneration or effectual calling. 
1 Peter 1, we're going to read the first three verses. Peter's addressing his believers. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And he goes to this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to inheritance that is imperishable, undefiling, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Kyle will probably speak on that next week, talking about being kept by God's power, but notice what he says. His very first blessing is to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who calls us to be born again, to a living hope. It is God's intervening in our lives. God comes to us as believers and changes us first. And so I could show more verses time's sake, I've got to unfortunately kind of go faster and just kind of summarize the rest of these, but I really only had two more arguments that I'm going to walk, just briefly summarize. One other argument, just from scripture, is Paul, and also Jude, the brother of our Lord, refer to God's people specifically as called, or it could even be rendered in some places the called of God. And so this is this isn't a generic that you've been called, like I've heard the gospel, someone shared a gospel track with me. That's not being the called. You see it in Romans 8, 28, 29. We're not going to turn there. We don't have time, unfortunately. But the great golden chain of salvation, the, the links that those whom God foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he calls. Those he calls, he justifies. Those he justifies, he glorified. All those are linked together showing how God views salvation. We see it merely as I just repent and believe the gospel. But from God's view, it's he foreknew, he foreloved, unconditional election. And those that he foreknew and foreloved, he predestined that they won't come to me. We've seen what God says about our sin. On their own ability, they, they can't receive me. They can't come to me and have life. But I'm for their sake going to come to them and intervene. And God will call you. And so that, why that calling it could be, I know from my own Hello? I had a feeling that for about a whole year, I was wrestling with the things of God. And then one night from just hearing a Paul Washer sermon after many of them, I just saw how I loved this gospel and I wanted to follow it. Some people, they can see clearly some, it's a little bit fuzzier. But God, all that he is predestined to come to him will come. That is the grace of yours, the glory of yours is the grace that he's going to intervene in your life to save you. And the next argument, the final one I wanted to argue is from all, multiple Psalms, the tongue of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, and even Jonah while he's sitting in a fish, this phrase has been declared in the Old Testament, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. See, the hinge that divided Armenian and his followers between the reformers was ultimately man's ability to respond to God versus God's sovereignty and salvation. Is it dependent on my decision to, to come to God? Is, am I ultimately the deciding factor of whether I'll believe or not? The reformers said, no, salvation belongs to God. And in their view, you can see a unity of the triune God. See, we believe God is one in essence, three in persons. In the Reformers' view, you can see how salvation is a work holy of God, that the Father elects a people for his own possession. Out of pure love and grace, not looking through the corridors of time, seeing if they'll believe, he chooses some that are going to come to him. What does the Son do? He accepts the love gift from the Father and freely, willingly comes to earth as a man and dies in this place specifically for those whom the Father chose. He pays for their sins in full that the justice of God, the love of God might be displayed. And what does the Spirit do? Did he just go and try to give everyone enough grace so that they'd come to God? No, he completes the work. He applies the finished work of Christ. Those that the Father chose, those the Son died for, in unity they send the one Holy Spirit to intervene when God so determines 
through the preaching of his word and the work of his spirit to draw those elect, those that Jesus died for, to himself. They won't come on their own. They are dead in their sin. So God intervenes and changes them so that they have a heart that will respond, will have faith. That's why at the very end of, I think in the London Baptist and in the Westminster Confession, they put that, man, it's not that God forces them to come. He changes the, the disposition, the, the character of their hearts so that they want to respond to God. He actually softens their hearts so that when they hear the gospel, they don't reject it, but they actually want to believe it and follow him. And so, I need to close soon. The practicality. I wanted to get time for questions. I do not think I'll be able to. Why is this passage practical? Why is this, sorry, doctrine practical? The first objection to here, if God's sovereign, why should I even, you know, why should I even evangelize? If he's going to save who he wants to save. You know what my response to that always is? If God isn't sovereign, why in the world are you even trying to evangelize? We just saw how man's dead in their sins. They hate God. They love their sin. They love their darkness. They will not come to God. They cannot please God in their flesh. And you think telling them to follow some Jew that died 2,000 years ago is going to convince them to give up their sin that they love? Yeah, that's never going to work. I would never have gone down to the jail and tried preaching to those guys who are wrapped in their addictions if I thought that, hey, you know, this guy who died 2,000 years ago is Jew. Uh, he wants you to quit doing all that stuff and uh, start, you know, cleaning up your life. Yeah, I wouldn't go down to the jail and try to preach that to those guys. But if I know that God, through the foolishness of preaching this gospel, that the holy God in love became the perfect man to die in our place and give us new life, if I, if I truly believe that God is actually going to use this message, it's the power of God, this gospel, to change sinners, no matter how hardened they are, that it will actually draw them out of their sin to loving and faithful obedience to Christ and his word. If I actually believe that God's going to do that, why wouldn't I go sow this seed everywhere? See, that, this is what has impacted missions and evangelism for the Reformed community, is that they actually believe the gospel is going to change people. That's why they go and sow the seed wherever they can, trusting that God's actually going to work on his people. I don't have to depend on a sinner that hates God to try and choose something that he hates over his sin that he loves. I can depend on the power of God, the gospel of God, to work in the hearts of sinners and bring them to a right relationship with Christ. And so this gives you true power and also true, what word I use? Boldness, boldness to go declare the gospel. Whether it's your family, whether you have people hardened in other religions or staunch Roman Catholics or people who are just hardened atheists that don't want to hear God, yeah, if it wasn't up to God's irresistible grace coming and changing people, the preaching of his word, the proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, that he came to die for sins and was resurrected on the third day, I would tell you not to go, but since that, God's going to use that message. This should give you all the boldness you need to go and share this gospel freely, to hand out the bread of life to others, praying that God will use that seed, because this is how he's promised to use it. And finally, to close, for me personally, this, this doctrine gives me true hope in God. It gives me real peace in God. You don't have to raise your hands. Any of you struggle with doubts, wrestle with worries about, man, can I continue in this Christian life? Any of you have hard fights with sin, times that you're just weeping over how sinful you are? Any of you struggle in this life? Because I do a lot. But what... What drives me to greater love is that, Sproul puts it, irresistible grace means that the sinner's resistance to the grace of regeneration cannot thwart or stop the Spirit's purpose. The grace of regeneration is irresistible in the sense that it's invincible. James White, I love this man, he, talking about Romans 9.15, Paul's quoting from Exodus when God displays his glory to Moses and says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It's always stirred my heart hearing that uh, those verbs could actually be, you'd have to ask Bryce, he's the Greek scholar, um, but you could actually take that and re-render re it to, I will mercy whom I will mercy. I will compassion whom I will compassion. That is what God declares towards sinners. That those I want to mercy, I'm going to mercy. Those I'm going to have compassion on, I'm going to compassion them. And so for a sinner like me, and sinners, the whole of us that struggle, they're weak, 
They're beat up at times by this Christian life, trying to die to sin, this world, and live for Christ. It's great to know that it's not ultimately and finally on me. It's on God who has mercy. This great God, as Paul says in Galatians 2.20, who loved himself and gave himself for me. That you can lay your cares and your hurts and worries and concerns upon the feet of sovereign grace and find refuge in the God who actually wants to save you, not present you an opportunity to save you. He wants to passionately rescue you. I know in Isaiah 30, it talks about God exalts himself to show compassion to you. That's what he said to Israel. That's so glorious to rest in that truth that there is a God who purposely, faithfully, patiently wants to change his people. And you see in the irresistible grace where he overcomes your hardened heart to give you faith. And as we'll see next week, he perseveres you, keeps you in the faith that you will not be lost. All the Father, and no one can come to me unless the Father draws him in. Those that he does draw, he will raise up on that last day. So take true hope and courage that God will save and love you if you have come to trust and repent in the gospel. So with that, I got to close. I think I'm past time. So Dear Lord, I just thank you for your sovereign grace and the life of your people. Lord, on our own, we are so sinful. We fall so short, so under sin. But God, you being rich in mercy, with the great love with which you loved us while we were dead in our sins, you made us alive in Christ Jesus. All praise belongs to you. All glory goes to you, O God. I thank you as next week we'll continue to see you will keep your sheep Not a single one of them will be lost. No one can pluck them from our Father's hand. And God, we thank you. We can rest in you for your irresistible, your effectual calling. We can thank you that the gospel was truly enough to save us. And we can rest and worship you this day. I pray that this worship would be glorifying, pleasing unto you. In Christ's name, amen.